welcome back to The Bunker with me, Ros Taylor, on the agenda for today's work event. Partygate may have dealt Boris Johnson a mortal blow, but his own party is mostly backing him. For the moment, anyway. The PM is determined to stay in power, but how long will Tory MPs put up with him as Labour's lead in the polls continues to grow? And this week marks one year since Joe Biden was inaugurated as President of America. We take a look at his report card from his first year in office. And the NATO Russia Council met last week in an effort to reduce tensions over Ukraine. Did the talks achieve anything or is Russia about to invade Ukraine for a second time? All that and more in this week's Bunker. Welcome back to the Bunker. It may come as a surprise to regular listeners, but we're usually sober when we do this recording. We now realise that you feel this was wrong. We cannot be sure exactly why the bunker fridge was unstocked with Prosecco, and we urge you not to judge us until our scariest colleague has carried out a full inquiry. In the meantime, we are asking all our panellists to bring in some booze, purely so that we can do a better job of helping you through this pandemic. I've got a lovely bottle of extra dry Manson and a sherry that I keep in the fridge. First up, welcome back to author and freelance Westminster journalist, Marie Leconte. What's your tipple, Marie? Oh, well, I'd say sort of any type of fizz, really. And actually, I think this is perhaps the moment for me to mention that I did once record this podcast after a slightly boozy, fizzy lunch. I will not tell you which episode, you'll just have to guess. Um, but yes, if, if we're making amends at this stage, <laughs> um, I, I would like to mention this now. Well, you do work in Westminster, Marie, so we will, we can forgive you for that, perhaps. <laughs> On Sunday, the Culture Secretary, Nadine Doris, said the next announcement about the BBC licence fee will be the last and that pensioners would no longer have to fear a knock on the door from the bailiff because they hadn't paid their fee. This seems to be part of what is being called Operation Red Meat, which is in turn a strategy to save Big Dog. I believe Boris Johnson. Why does a segment of the Conservative Party dislike the BBC so much? I mean, I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. I think it is quite interesting in the case of Nadine Dorries, because she's clearly hated it for a very long time. And I think, you know, to the extent that when she got the job, I think everyone thought, you know, the BBC is not, if not entirely done for, was certainly in some amount of trouble. But I mean, I think it's mostly that Brexit has been the big problem over the past few years, because I think that entire wing of the Conservative Party just convinced itself entirely that the BBC was just chock full of Remainers and could not be trusted and, you know, were just metropolitan elites and so on. But Again, I think my slight issue is that it's not clear to me at all what they even want instead. So clearly they don't like what's on offer now. But again, you know, that they didn't really have any other ideas, I think. The BBC is one of Britain's greatest soft power exports. It broadcasts in more than 40 languages. Wouldn't cuts to the BBC hurt that, you know, that that effort, if you like, the global Britain, you could even say, our influence abroad? Oh, you know, entirely, actually. And I was um, writing a column on this today, actually. Every time I go home to France, it is quite funny because every sort of different member of my family is going to talk to me about different bits of the BBC. So my dad absolutely loves podcasts and, you know, in our own time, etc. My grandmother is basically hooked to any and all BBC drama, like any drama the BBC has ever made in its entire history. And, you know, and these are all people who've never lived in Britain, will never live there, etc. Some of whom don't even speak English. So, yeah, I, I just find it utterly baffling at a time when... Britain is meant to obviously be coming out of the pandemic like every other country on earth, but also coming out of the European Union and kind of announcing itself to the world as, a, you know, as, as, a, as a country kind of standing by itself. I don't understand why it would lose 
voluntarily one of the biggest bits of soft power it has. You know, people around the world absolutely love the BBC. So it makes no sense to me at all. I do think it will absolutely be harmful on the long term. On the other hand, maybe all we need is, you know, Netflix, The Crown, and that's that's enough. Also joining us today, we have former diplomat and host of Doomsday Watch podcast, Arthur Snell. Hello, Arthur. Hello, Roz. Tell us about Christine Lee, the Chinese agent who, who's been trying to infiltrate Parliament. How has she been trying to win influence in our cradle of democracy? Well, Christine Lee is a, a British citizen uh, born in China, I think actually, strictly speaking, in Hong Kong, but she's clearly her affiliations are with mainland China. She's a lawyer. She has a website. Her law firm is based in Birmingham. You can look it up. And uh, she very proudly proclaims her various roles in the Chinese community in this country, including the fact that she's the legal advisor to the Chinese embassy. What is less well known about Christine Lee is a sort of double life that she lives in China, where she is a prominent member of various senior committees of the Chinese Communist Party. And there are photos of her online shaking hands with Xi Jinping. And also, you can see, you know, she'll give speeches in Chinese, where she lords the uh, the role that Xi Jinping has paid, played in, in sort of reviving China's greatness. And she talks about her own uh, sort of responsibility that she feels to um, to be a communicator of China's voice and let the world understand China and, and help the motherland develop and that sort of thing. So that's what she says in Chinese to a Chinese audience. Where it gets interesting is the huge amounts of money that she is prepared to donate to British politicians. As is widely being reported, she donated to Barry Gardner. People have scoffed at that, but Gardner was somebody who was very energetic in supporting the Hinkley Point nuclear plant, which is a Chinese-led project, and of course, arguably very sensitive to have China in our nuclear power stations. And another thing that Christine Lee did, and this is a great example of how money can buy influence in British politics, is that she supported an all-party parliamentary group. These are the kind of informal sort of quasi-select committees that exist in Parliament. And it's the Chinese in Britain group, and she's financed that, and that helps British Chinese people get ahead in politics and helps grow the influence of China in Britain. So that's Christine Lee, and that's how she is, um, by, by being generous with her money, is, is sort of becoming more influential and powerful in British politics. Yes, you can set up an APPG on almost anything, which has always surprised me slightly. Marie, have you ever been aware of Chinese influence at Parliament? Um, I haven't, but I can't say I'm overly surprised either. I think it's it's a place that, on the one hand, obviously feels massively like a bubble and is quite closed off, etc. But on the other, it is quite easy to become a hanger-on if you really want to and you're not, sort of, you know, stupid. Um, and I should know, I basically made my career out of being a hanger-on in Westminster. But, um, but no, more seriously, I think <laughs> it, it is quite possible if you sort of know how to go about it, I think, to kind of make yourself a Westminster person, you know, and with no one kind of questioning you being there quite easily, like probably more easily than people realise. Our special guest today is investigative journalist John Sweeney, formerly of the BBC, where he worked on Panorama and Newsnight. He's also the host of Hunting Ghislaine, a podcast series about the life of disgraced socialite Ghislaine Maxwell. Welcome to the bunker, John. Hi, hello. Um, Ros, it's great to be here. Last week, Prince Andrew was stripped of his military titles by the Queen after learning that he faces a civil sex assault case after a US ruling. Is he on his own now? Prince Andrew has my full support. Boris Johnson has my full support. 
Um, Novak Djokovic. Anyway, you've, you've got the drift. Um, <laughs> he's yes and no. So he was stripped of his kind of royal hobnobs, and they took away his kind of military stuff, which the Sunday Mirror, I think, reported that that, that made him cry. But the palace is kind of slow about this stuff. What might seem like big potatoes in Buckingham Palace, it doesn't quite cut through to the public because he's still a prince. He's still called Prince Andrew and he's still called the Duke of York. Now, they've taken off the HRH, so he's neither high nor royal, but he's still a prince and he's still a duke. And I'm I'm afraid that undermines the, uh, the currency of our constitutional monarchy before anybody you know gets the idea that I'm some kind of raving trot, I I really like Mrs. Queen, and I and the proof of this is when she gave her Christmas address, which I found incredibly moving about about um, her loss um, and her love for Prince Philip, and when she said he was the kind of he could sort of squeeze joy, um, he could squeeze fun out of the drier situation. I thought that's real love right there. I actually made my family um, stand up. Stand up! It's the Queen. <laughs> and they did. You know, I, I was like experimenting with brainwashing. But, um, but they... Uh, so I'm... Uh, I kind of get it. So the argument for having the royal family and the democracies, it does a sweet thing, which it puts an awful lot of kind of far-right rubbish and puts it uh, in a kind of dead end, a cul-de-sac. So the stuff about love of country gets sort of tied in with the royal family story. And all they have to do is keep their noses pretty clean, but they're human beings and we all understand that. And I think all the other scandals that I've been sort of grown up with, you know, um, Charles and Diana, um, all the others are very human and understandable, and we all see these things in our own families. What Prince Andrew is accused of doing, it, albeit in a civil case in New York, it's not criminal, um, is quite dark. Now, the reason it's not criminal is that all the sex trafficking laws don't come in in any way at all until 2003, you can't be tried for a crime before the laws have been passed. So it looks as though, certainly for the moment, um, Prince Andrew is safe in Britain for the seeable future. That might change in New York. We don't know. There's a photograph of the two of them together. She's wearing a, a, a closely uh, a cropped top, and there's his hand round her waist. And next to him and Virginia Roberts Euphra is Ghislaine Maxwell, who has just been convicted on five or six counts, there's a possibility of a retrial, but for the moment she's guilty. This is terrible. It's terrible for the royal family. It's terrible for the, our constitutional monarchy. And his other explanation is, it's not me because she said I sweated terribly when I danced at Tramp the Night Club. And I can't sweat because I was shot at during the Falklands War. That is scientific nonsense. So he's in grave trouble and he's bringing down the good name of the royal family with him. And at the moment, it's a car crash, which is continuing. The drip drip of revelations about Downing Street partying has abated. 
for the time of recording, and we're waiting for DCI Sue Gray's investigation into what went on, <laughs> whether it qualified as work events, and what responsibility Boris Johnson bears for it. In the meantime, Big Dog has been holed up, busy coming up with some populist red meat to throw at us. He's human and we make mistakes, Dadim Zahawi, the Education Secretary, told BBC. Marie, at the end of last week, the PM felt like a dead man walking, really. But things seem to have quietened down a bit over the weekend as we wait, as we keep being told to wait, for the results of Gray's investigation. Do you think Tory MPs are hoping to battle through the next few months and eject Johnson after the local elections in May so that he can take the blame for those? Um, So just as a quick note before answering this, what I find really funny, so I've only realised this as you said it, the idea of, you know, a sort of like a big dog throwing some red meat and not the other way around reminds me of, I mean, (laughs) A, makes no sense, but B, reminds me of, I can't remember who it was, some really high profile Trump supporters in the US a few years ago who'd made some cartoon about a witch hunt, like the Trump witch hunt, but where the witches were doing the hunting. And it was like, no, that, that's not what witch hunt means. So I've got, I've got a similar thing about the idea of a big dog throwing meat. And it's like, no, wrong way around. Um, anyway, I've got that out of my head now. Um, <laughs> so, no, so the answer on this is, yeah, no, absolutely. That's absolutely what's happening. So I think, A, uh, the Conservatives know that uh, the local elections are coming in May. And the problem is, so let's say there's a leadership contest tomorrow. There's a new leader who comes in. They would not have the time, I think, to reverse the party's fortunes between now and May. So the first thing really that new bright, shiny prime minister would do would be to take basically a beating at the locals, which is not the narrative I think you'd want. So I think that there's that problem. But then there's also the problem that I'm not sure they're particularly like quite a lot of Tory MPs are particularly enthused by the current field of candidates, really, for who would replace Boris. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, we're, we're talking potentially about Rishi Sunak. We're talking about Liz Truss. Who are you betting on to replace him? Have um, you got? Is there a dark horse who might come forward? I am very glad you asked that because actually I have been banging the drum for several months that Penny Mordaunt uh, would be a dark horse because I think she's quite an interesting character in that she was part of the Vote Leave campaign. So obviously that's going to be quite a good thing for quite a lot of Conservative MPs and members. But since then, you know, has also let she back Jeremy Hunt uh, in the last leadership contest. So I think the moderates would quite like her as well. So she could be seen as a unifying candidate. And, and yeah, and basically, yes, I've been saying that for quite a long time. And then uh, stories have started coming out today saying that she's apparently considering a run, or at least conservative sources are saying she is. So there you go. Um, you didn't quite hear it first, but um, nearly. So I think Penny Morden would be one to watch. I think another name as well that has been bandied around a bit is Tom Tugendhat, um, on the kind of more moderate side of the party. I'm not convinced he would do it. Or if he would, you know, it'd be a sort of Rory Stewart run you know, of the kind of he'll never, you know, he'll never win, but he's quite an interesting person to have in there. And then I'm not sure, I, I still think there, that there will be, whenever that contest does happen, a few surprising names in the fall. Like I do think that quite a lot of people at the moment are starting to have a thing and saying, actually, you know, people don't love trust, they don't love Rishi, is it my turn? Morden would be interesting. So she was at Diffid, wasn't she? But she, I think she has a military background, which is bound to appeal to the Tories. She does. And I believe uh, she was named Penny after an MHS carrier or something, which, again, I feel like Tories would love that. I wouldn't be at all surprised if someone came through who we were not expecting, just because everyone else seems so, yeah, useless, frankly. Just anyway. a bit drab. 
Arthur, the head of the COVID ta- task force, Kate Josephs, also apologised for having a leaving party during lockdown or, or stage step two or whatever hellish state we were in at the time. Did number 10 always have a different working culture from the rest of the civil service or has it changed since Johnson took over? I think there's a slight difference in the number 10 culture in that people at number 10 work incredibly long hours which is probably what you expect. You know, it's the centre of government and you're only going to go there if you're highly ambitious. But what that means is, particularly during the lockdown, they were still going into the office. So most civil servants, as with most white-collar workers, you know, all over Britain, were were doing that lockdown thing and we all were talking about Zoom and Joe Wicks and home educating and all the rest of it. Well, if you worked at Number 10 Downing Street, you still went to the office every day. So in one respect, probably those people... Although they were well aware, of course, they could not be aware that the world had changed around them. I imagine they hadn't quite taken on board the fact that almost everybody else, their complete life had changed, you know, to an unrecognisable degree. So I think that is, that's an aspect of this story. But I do think the influence of Boris Johnson is significant. Now, there's reporting, uh, including, I think, was it Dominic Lawson over the weekend, who seems to have had sources who told them that on the specific party that uh, Boris Johnson claimed he didn't know it was a party. In fact, he was well aware it was a party and was sort of encouraging that it would go ahead when there was a bit of nervousness about it. Certainly, I know that when Boris Johnson was in the Foreign Office, he was very keen to uh, sort of be in with the crowd. He's somebody who craves approval, clearly. And and he, he would sort of show up at the staff canteen and, and try and sort of sit with the the ordinary people and, you know, be someone you could you could sort of josh along with. And I think he's that's part of his slightly skin-crawling kind of politician's tendency, that he's desperate to be liked. So I, it's easy to imagine that he was quite encouraging of all this kind of uh, Friday drinks and all the rest of it that seems to be, become part of the culture. One of the other things that emerged from Dominic Lawson's piece was that apparently Johnson called Martin Reynolds, his private secretary, who was the person who sent the email suggesting everyone get together in the number 10 garden. He called him my loyal Labrador. Now, I know we've heard too much about dogs already in this in this podcast, but <laughs> it's a very strange phrase to use about a civil servant, isn't it? And it ought to have rung alarm bells, you'd think. Yes, you would think. I think with Boris Johnson, what... You know, this is the Bullingdon Club in government, and perhaps even more than David Cameron, because you know that Cameron ultimately, perhaps performatively, but he basically said, oh, that was a very embarrassing part of my, um, you know, youth, and I'm not at all proud of it. I look back on it with a bit of bit of awkwardness. And maybe he wouldn't say that behind closed doors, but that's what he said in public. But Boris Johnson, it's clear that he loves that stuff. He loves the idea of a bunch of posh blokes getting pissed up and all having silly nicknames for each other and all the rest of it. And I think this is what we're seeing. We're seeing the Bullingdonianization, and that's a new word, of, 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 the British, uh, of British society and, and the way in which everything's a big public school, Jake. And obviously, you never get caught, you never pay the consequences, and there's always someone else to drop in it. And if someone's a loyal Labrador, well, of course, you know, people love their dogs, but also when the dog uh, has has reached the end of its sort of natural life, you you take it to the vet and they make the problem go away. And and that's what apparently he's planning <laughs> to do both with Martin Reynolds and perha- perhaps with Dan Rosenfield as well. So those loyal Labradors are also perhaps uh, set for the chop. 
I feel that Dylan too should watch out at this time. Yes, indeed. John, you've reported on a lot of corrupt leaders in your time. Many PMs would have resigned by now after lying in the way that Johnson has has lied. Why hasn't he? Will he ever, or do you think he will have to be dragged out of number 10 backwards? I, I think you're, you're being very unfair um, <laughs> to, to the dogs. Um, oh, uh, but uh, if the question is about Boris Johnson. So these were, you know, let's stay on message for a bit, shall we? These were work-related events. Um, uh, but there was the idea BYOB uh, B stands for bring your own bottle. That's entirely untrue. It means bring your own bureau. No, anyway, uh, I think <laughs> uh, I can't keep it up. It's uh, it's all bollocks. It, <laughs> there are no stories about parties at number 10 when Theresa May was in charge or Gordon Brown. I kind of get it, though. You know, these this is. These are high-octane people who have to work continually at the dead centre of power because otherwise the whole of government machinery would stop and it's perfectly reasonable for them to have a bit of a drink. But I think that Boris encouraged it. But the other thing you can kind of smell, and in particular, you know, my ears pick up, and actually my, my own dog, Bertie's ears picked up, when the, we go on to docks, uh, Bertie's a, a whippy poo, far brighter than any Labrador, I'd point out. But there's, there's a thing when you, when, the, the, you know, this use of my loyal Labrador, here's a problem, and there's the problem right there. There is nobody around Boris Johnson who says, you know what, boss, let's not do this. Because if it leaks, it will be look terrible. But the other thing, boss, is we shouldn't do it because it's wrong, full stop. And, I mean, we've all heard these stories, but my cousin Paul Sweeney he was a really funny guy. Uh, he died of COVID, and we weren't going to his funeral. Then the news of um, his funeral up in the in the Wirral, uh, Birkenhead, near Liverpool. And when the news of Barnard Castle broke, I phoned up uh, his widow and I said, I'm coming. But what that meant was I'm, I drove four or five hours to the northwest, went to the funeral. We didn't have a drink. There was no wake. This is very, very weird for Sweeney's. And then I drove all the way back again. And it was, um, they actually, the funeral directors dropped Paul's coffin in the, in the grave. And then we all gasped. And the, the funeral director turned around and said, well, I, I heard that Paul had a great sense of humor and he would have enjoyed that last ride. <laughs> it was, that was the best bit of an otherwise grim event. I was talking to my son about this, and he was saying, and he's 30, but he was saying, well, what about all the students? Every, you know, they haven't missed uh, grieving, but they've missed, they've missed all those moments in life, you know, parties and freshers' events and all that kind of stuff. They've, so everybody in the country knows that, that what happened was wrong, and it really, really is cutting through. So, but I also think that Boris is going to cling to power like a limpet and you can already feel the way that the uh, the party is moving and i think that unless there is kind of complete compelling evidence in black and white that boris commanded that these parties take place and i don't and i think he's smart enough not to have done that then he's going to stay in power like a limpet Deputy heads will row uh, will uh, will roll. The uh, the Labrador is already at the vets. Um, 
the lethal injection, poised, all of that. They're all gone. But he's going to stay in power in part because there is no one in the conservative ranks who is historically as good at Boris at um, at getting the voters out, who had that magic. But that magic has turned dark and people are seeing through it. So I think there's, a, there's going to be a fascinating context for the heart and the conscience of the Conservative Party, assuming, of course, it has a heart and it has a conscience. This latest attack on the BBC, I mean, you've worked, you worked there for a long time. Were you expecting it? I mean, do you, do you think uh, not, only, not only was I expecting it, but I want them to... No, I don't, actually, uh, funnily enough. I worked there for 17 years and I kind of crashed out in awkward circumstances, uh, Tony Hall, a strange alliance for Tony Hall and Tommy Robinson uh, saw me off. But I love the old thing. I pay my license fee. And I think the BBC is, despite all its faults, and I could bore you, Ros, all bloody day with, with what okay. I would say. I've worked there too, John. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So yeah. I would. I, the thing in particular is the kind of pre cringe of BBC management when faced with. Uh, with um, Arthur's spot on with the Bullingdon Club kind of thing, that they would go into pre-cower mode and that BBC bosses would be... I became their enemy because I was the kind of reporter who said, well, here's a story about Aaron Banks owning two flats um, and the company is called Ural Properties and the, the two flats overlook the Royal Naval Dockyard in Portsmouth. I, I brought those stories and managed to get them on air. They didn't like that stuff. Having said all that, the BBC is part of the national conversation, has been so for 100 years, is part of the glue of Great Britain and the United Kingdom the United and Northern Ireland, the United Kingdom. And I covered the wars in Yugoslavia, and I really, really, really don't want to see... Um, I think all nationalism is wrong. English nationalism, number one, but also Scottish nationalism, Irish nationalism, Welsh nationalism. I'm not a nationalist, full stop. I think it's wrong. The BBC is part of us, part of Britain. And what's happening is that Boris Johnson, big dog to save himself, is throwing red meat. And uh, Marie's absolutely right to, to recognise the philosophical error in this because you throw the meat to the dog not the dog uh, uh, the meat the other way around anyway what's happening is wrong and it weakens us as the united kingdom as a country and you said it yourself you know we've got netflix we've got the crown well hey part of the bbc's great great thing is that it delivers stuff with a british sensitivity and a britishness that Hollywood just isn't interested in. Yes, they love our royal family, in particular as it's smashing itself to pieces at the moment, but the moment you kill the BBC, you switch it off, there'll be far less British stuff because it's British-generated and paid for by the great British public. So I think what they're doing is short-sighted, it's bad for the future of the United Kingdom, and it will deprive us and our culture of a good and great thing. This Thursday will mark a year since Joe Biden was inaugurated as US president. 
2021 began with the Democrats regaining control of the Senate in the Capitol riot on 6th of January. It ended with Biden having the second lowest approval for any president after one year, with only Trump proving less popular after 12 months in office. Was 2021 a bad year for Biden? Or despite his ratings, has he managed to pull America back from the brink? And with the midterms approaching and Trump refusing to go away, what will 2022 have in store for the most powerful man in the world? John, what kind of president is Joe Biden? What direction is he taking the United States in? I've always liked Joe. I wanted Joe to win uh, the Democratic nomination because uh, in, in politics to succeed, you've got to steal the other guy's trousers. And the problem was that Hillary, there were a lot of people on the Democratic side of the fence that didn't like Hillary because she because she took money from uh, Goldman Sachs, because she was too woke, because perhaps she was a woman, because she's never, ever been blue-collar. And Joe has his origins in kind of blue-collar Pennsylvania, uh, then to Delaware. He's got something that, that actually is mainstream, it's elderly mainstream America. Now, uh, my mate, my American mate, Michael Weiss, says his granddad, who's forgotten where the keys are to the car, And yes, that's true. And he screwed up horribly over Afghanistan. Part of me is wishing that Vladimir Putin will further invade um, Ukraine, not because of of the blood that would be spilled. That would be bad. But I think, and if Putin does it, it's down to Putin, no one else. But if Putin does do that, then I think that Joe, having made a mistake over Afghanistan because it was over-focused on America domestically, will will come in hard and that could prove the making of him. So but to be honest, I was in I was in New York for three weeks for the Glenn Maxwell trial just running up before Christmas. And all of the other American reporters were afraid that what's happening right now is that the Trump Republicans are seizing hold of the electoral machinery in all the weather vane states, so places like Georgia, Florida they're not going to go Democrat again because the Trump people will call it for Trump come what may. That's the anxiety. And there wasn't, there was like 50 reporters covering that court case and every single one of them is afraid of Trump coming back. So I'm kind of pretty desperate that Joe Biden's, he's at the moment, he's not doing very well. I think he's a good man, and I think he's tougher than uh, than we think. But part of me fears that he's like Hindenburg in 1932, and the other guy is waiting for him to die. Okay, that's quite sobering. Arthur, let's talk about how he's handled other foreign affairs, Afghanistan apart. How has he dealt with the growing rift between the US and China? Well, interestingly on that, he's really kept... Trump's policy is going, but he does it without the sort of gratuitous uh, racism and, and, and sort of generally boorish behaviour. So the sanctions are still there. You know, the US is boycotting, doing a diplomatic boycott of the Winter Olympics, which are just starting in a couple of weeks. So that means, you know, there'll be no big wigs there. Their athletes will participate, but they'll keep it pretty low key. The Biden administration has tightened some of the regulations on US businesses working with Huawei. So it's basically impossible for, for, for US businesses to work with Huawei, the telecoms business. So in that sense, he's he's carried on that China, that fairly aggressive China policy. 
I think what you could say he's added to that is something which is positive. He makes the positive case for democracy. Of course, Donald Trump has proved beyond any doubt that he doesn't believe in democracy, whereas uh, Biden clearly does. So they held their summit for democracy in America um, just just before the Christmas. And it's easy to poke fun at these things and sort of say, well, who's America to have a summit for democracy? Their own democracy is in a mess. But I think it sends an important message. It shows that America still aspires to that kind of leadership position. And in a way, with such a difficult perspective on the domestic front, uh, it is right, probably, for for Joe Biden to internationally proclaim the merits of democracy. One of your Doomsday Watch episodes looked at the possibility of civil war in the US. Do you think Trump is still in a position to incite and inspire that? I fear the answer is yes. And of course, John, you know, has just told us what he was hearing. And he was very recently in the US. With the Doomsday Watch thing, obviously, big plug for the podcast. For anybody who hasn't heard about it, please go and check out episode one on the US. Uh, We started work on that months ago. And when we started that work, uh, it felt like a pretty fringe idea, if I'm honest. And we spoke to some some serious people and they engaged with it. But other people said, mm, you know, I think you've gone a bit far there. Now, in the past month, there have been numerous articles, podcasts, serious long form journalism in mainstream uh, publications, all looking at this issue. So obviously, uh, from a very narrow, personal egomaniacs perspective, I think that's wonderful. But taking the big picture for a moment, this is pretty worrying. And I think what's going on here is that Biden doesn't seem to have a way out of losing the midterm elections. And it's not unusual for the ruling party in the White House to take a setback in Congress in the midterms. But what comes out of that is what John is talking about, is the the state-level electoral officials. These are often elected people in America, in the key swing states, Arizona, Georgia, places like that. These are going to become head-banging Republicans, people who are prepared basically to fake an election. So when we talk about civil war, It is very easy to slip into the idea of a rerun of the 1860s, vast uniformed armies facing each other in sort of traditional battles. I I think that's completely out of the question, and I I would be crazy to suggest that. But the civil wars of the 21st century are the ones that happened in places like Iraq, uh, where heavily armed militias carry out assassinations, carry out random attacks, uh, and certain areas of a large country appear to belong to certain political groups. And I think actually, if you look at a country such as America with an unbelievable uh, quantity of weapons in private hands and a propensity to political violence in certain groups, particularly on the far right, it's not hard to see how that could spiral out of control in a situation where you've got highly contested election outcomes, which seem almost inevitable with what's coming up in, in 22 and then 24. Marie, Biden has found it hard to get his legislation through. His $3 trillion Build Back Better bill, that will need to be watered down, and the voting rights bill was killed last week. But the Democrats control the Senate. Why are they having so much trouble getting their programme through? Um, Well, so I'm admittedly not a kind of expert in American politics, but from where I stand, my understanding is that, because obviously they're 
house is um, split 50-50, which means that technically they should be able to get as much stuff through um, as they want. But because of the filibuster rules, most pieces of legislation actually did a 60 majority um, to get through. And which seems to be the absolute recurring problem. So I know that they're trying to reform that, but obviously that feels like a bit of a catch-22 and they're kind of struggling with that as well, but they think even some kind of um, centrist Democrats refusing that as well. So yeah, it, it seems to me that is that is the kind of main issue at the moment. John, do you think that Biden will run for re-election in 2024, given his age? I mean, he'll be 80 in November. He hasn't, he said that he might well run, but he hasn't been definite about it. Do you think he will? Yes, I think he will, in particular, if Trump is the candidate. At the moment, there is no great champion for the Democrats that that is better than Joe. To get power, you've got to go towards the middle everywhere, but in particular in the States. And at the moment, there is nobody better than Joe. The problem is he's old and he's getting older, but he's got integrity and he's still got some fight in him. And you can tell from the kind of sort of pleading sort of tone I'm saying here that things are bad. Because if this, you know, if Joe Biden has a stroke or a heart attack, Trump is very, very close to power. And what's frightening about him is that he realizes some of the mistakes he made and he won't make those mistakes a second time. I'm scared. We've been, yeah, we've we've been we've been quite scared, and I mean, we perhaps haven't talked. By the way, I'm just trying to outdoom Arthur because oh, Arthur's okay. podcast <laughs> is, is 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 miserable. Get, but my uh, hunting Glen is actually more miserable than Arthur's stuff. Arthur's a real. If you meet him, he's a real. You know, he's a real optimist. He's full of shiny good fun. It's only, uh, but. <laughs> So anyway, I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to undercut uh, the the. Hey, you're right. Hunting Galen is much more much more depressing. <laughs> you win. You win. No, but it's also bleakly funny. Whereas yeah. yours yours is just miserable, mate. <laughs> well, let, let's try let's try be a bit more cheerful here. What and this is a question. Oh right, for yeah. Hands really. up for Trump, what, huh? <laughs> no, 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 no. What has what what are we pleased that Biden has done? What has he achieved domestically apart from obviously being a decent guy and not Trump? There has been some things, I think even, you know, just to start with a COVID uh, relief deal of like $1.9 trillion was quite incredible. Rejoining the Paris Climate Accord as well uh, was good. And the infrastructure bill as well, which is, I think, um, $1 trillion. Like, There's been some good stuff. And there's been a moratorium on federal executions. And so that, that there's been some stuff. Like, I do worry a bit that, again, the kind of, you know, it, it's all been doom and gloom from everyone. But he's, he's not clearly been doing as well, I think, as he could. But there, there's been, yeah, s- some things. Arthur, are you uh, pleased with any aspects of Biden's record? You have to put Afghanistan on one side, but actually the foreign policy combining what is a really firm and quite aggressive stance on China with actually a more constructive, broad-based approach on things like having this summit of democracy, on on tackling Russia, uh, whilst at the same time not just trying to be sort of gratuitously hawkish towards Russia. You know, there are things that could be positive. But I do think the problem is, and, and this is, you know, thanks to the senators who may be elected on a Democrat ticket but won't vote for his his um, legislation, that basically he's got nothing he can point to as a, or got not nothing, he's got not very much he can point to as a really solid achievement for the first half of his term. And I just think that's very tough. 
Last week, the NATO Russia Council met for the first time since 2019 in a bid to reduce tensions over Ukraine. Nearly 100,000 troops have assembled on the Russia-Ukraine border. The NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says there's a real risk of conflict in Europe and there have already been cyber attacks on Ukrainian digital infrastructure. Arthur, how did the NATO-Russian talks go? Because Vladimir Putin's initial list of demands was widely regarded, even at home, as pretty unrealistic. Yeah, well, they didn't go very well. That Yes, the Russian demands were more or less NATO has to shut itself down anywhere east of Berlin. So that was a non-starter. Uh, I think they had a four-hour sort of powwow and the Russians left saying, we don't know when the next meeting is, probably because they were, hadn't been told by Putin. I imagine being a Russian negotiator is quite a tough job because you, you, you don't know what you're allowed to do, but you, you know what you're not allowed to do, which is almost everything. Very little progress. They are planning to have some more talks in Vienna under the umbrella of this thing called the OSCE, which is a a slightly moribund international organisation that that is supposed to involve peace and security in Europe. I think ultimately Putin doesn't want to negotiate over anything that's really negotiable, and that's the difficulty. John, there's a weather-related reason why it appears that Russia hasn't invaded Ukraine yet. Tell us about that. The winter's been mild, and at the moment it's too muddy for tanks to run quickly on the ground. So the reason why, you know, the CIA or people close to them, American intelligence analysts are speculating it hasn't happened yet, is because the Russian army, which knows all about uh, tanks getting stuck in mud because that's what happened to the Germans coming uh, going the other way um, back in 41, is that the, y- you don't want to get stuck in mud. So they're either waiting for a cold spell, a really cold spell, and we'd feel it here uh, in Britain too, or they've got to wait till May when the ground hardens, uh, the spring rains have stopped, and uh, the tanks can run on firm dry ground again so that is the the kind of mud explanation for why no invasion yet so tobias so the other day tobias elwood uh, who is chairman of the commons um defense committee and a former soldier i think said that the likelihood of a russian invasion is very high and i think he's getting that from um our, our british military intelligence people who are almost certainly listening to the tank commanders on the ground in um, close to close to Ukraine, and they're they're hearing their chatter, they're hearing their traffic, so it's very very dark. Arthur, how does gas play into all this? We're beginning to see in the UK with the big hike in energy prices just how dependent Europe is on Russian gas. How much power does Putin have as a result of his control of gas supplies? I find it very interesting because there's been this on-running discussion long before the current crisis over Ukraine or the specific current crisis, there's been many other crises, Uh, There's been this on-running discussion about Nord Stream 2. Listeners will be well aware this is a pipeline that goes from Russia to Germany and bypasses the other countries of Eastern and Central Europe. So, of course, it's very bad for those countries and good for Germany. Now, Nord Stream 2 has yet to be switched on. The gas has yet to flow. Up until this point, there was a hope among some in America and possibly some here in the UK that 
the Germans could be persuaded to abandon it altogether. Now, what we're seeing at the moment is discussion that if Putin can be persuaded back from a threatened invasion of Ukraine or further invasion of Ukraine, of course, he's already invaded Ukraine, then the reward for Putin is that we get he gets to switch on Nord Stream 2. So on one level, you can see this is an example of how uh, Putin may get benefits from all of this, even if his soldiers don't take one step into Ukraine and it's seen as a climb down from him. He may well get upsides in terms of, of, of being able to supply Germany with gas via Nord Stream. I think that the wider point is ultimately that Unless you live in far Western Europe, as we do, we can benefit from gas that comes from Norway and across the Atlantic and, and, and round from the Gulf and so on. Most of continental Europe is very dependent on Russian gas. And we're still affected by it here because, of course, it affects the, the availability of gas into continental Europe from Russia affects prices and so on. So ultimately, uh, yeah, they have they still have a very strong hold over us. And of course, again, with with winter on us, it, it, it's particularly important. John, you met Vladimir Putin in 2014. Tell us about that. Uh, I'd been to my uh, niece's uh, wedding and um, and I was still um, pretty tipsy. And I flew nine times. We worked out, it was after the shooting down of MH17, and we worked out that Putin was opening a mammoth museum in Yakutsk in far eastern Siberia, nine time zones east of London. By the time I got there, I was starving, and I demanded that we stop and get a kebab, and I wolfed it. And then I uh, got to the Mammoth Museum and pretended to be a professor of mammothology while all the real ones were shaking with fear. And, <laughs> and then as Putin sort of came up to me, I stepped out and said, what about the killings in Ukraine? And all of the Kre- uh, Kremlin media pools, uh, camera lights came on because they all thought this was a prearranged question because everything in Russia around Putin is prearranged. And of course it wasn't. And uh, the entire Moscow or the Kremlin security uh, looked at daggers. Peskov was furious with me, so furious. And he speaks good English and he, he's got some mansion somewhere in Surrey or wherever. But he forgot his English. And Putin, who pretends not to speak English, had to start translating for his translator. Well, Putin gave me a long and boring answer, effectively, that it was all Ukraine's fault. In the middle of all of this, two things were happening. One is that I noticed that Putin, had, had, had his flesh was plastic and he just had, I guess, uh, some Botox as part of his kind of facelift. I thought he was like one of the plastic autons in Doctor Who. They're actually the, <laughs> the nesting consciousness. And I wanted to touch his skin and remember I was still smashed from the, my niece's wedding. And the other thing was that the kebab started... Um, revolting and started uh, a mutiny in my stomach (laughs) and I thought oh god I'm going to projectile vomit over Vladimir Putin now the positive was I'd never have to buy a beer in Kiev ever again on the the other side throwing up projectile (laughs) vomiting over Vladimir Putin I thought was even you know I had trouble with BBC management but try and get out of that one John Uh, and and Putin and I stared at each other, and there's this moment where I thought, if I blink, I'm going to throw up over this fucker. And I, uh, and I, so I didn't blink, and I didn't throw up about him, uh, throw up over him. So that was a, it's one of the great 
uh, moments of my life. And frankly, I regret it. So I wish I had. Actually, I wish the compare had done it. He's. I've also met Trump, and uh, I asked uh, Trump a series of really annoying questions, including uh, concluding with, why did you buy your concrete for Trump Tower from fat Tony Salerno? And Trump walked out on me and left. Putin is way smarter, way, way smarter, uh, and far more deadly and far more frightening. Uh, and so he is a thug, a secret policeman, a killer by proxy, very smart, very, very streetwise. I think he's running out of road. In like, here are some numbers, right? In um, in 2012, I think 12,000 Russian science scientists, people like people who got degrees in you know uh, smart biology or computer science or physics, emigrated. In 2020, 75,000 did. One in two young Russians want to emigrate. This is a ghastly place. There is no gold rush of people desperate to come to Russia in the way that there is to, to cross, you know, to make the perilous crossing across Dover. In a funny way, that's a compliment for our way of life and our, and our country. There is no such wave. There is the opposite. People of any who've, who've got a future are leaving Russia in their droves. So Putin has to continue to generate this kind of fear, threat of the other, this nonsense that the West are in any way aggressive towards Russia in any kind of, we want to take their territory. And and he's telling this dark fairy tale to his people. And, the, you know, one just hopes and pray that at some point the Russian people and the oligarchs will wake up and saying, I'm not buying this nonsense anymore. Go away, Vladimir. For the moment, his grip on power is strong. This gamble may not work. I hope it doesn't. And that brings us to the end of this week's bunker, which means it's now time for the panel's escape routes. What are the films, TV shows, music, books and work meetings that have transported our panellists away from the bruising world of politics? Arthur, what have you been watching or listening to this week? Uh, well, I did something very exciting, which was, uh, it was just at the end of last week, in fact, but I went to a theatre, a real theatre, and sat down and saw real actors do a real play. And it was Alan Akebourne, so I suppose it's fairly kind of light comic stuff. But it, frankly, I could have watched the, the world's most boring play. It was just incredibly wonderful to be at a live event. So that was my thing, going to live theatre. Marie, how about you? What have you been up to? Um, so I have been playing Hollow Knight, which is a delightful video game where you're basically a little bug with a nail fighting other little bugs. But it's actually deceptively incredibly hard, but also a really beautiful game with a beautiful, beautiful soundtrack. So I think it's quite famous. But um, if yeah, gamers have not heard of it somehow, then I'd recommend that. And I have been reading the wonderful Did You Hear Mammy Died by Seamus O'Reilly, which is also now very famous. So don't think anyone will discover it through this, but it's the memoirs of this um, Irish writer whose mum died when he was five and whose dad was left to uh, bring up 10 children by himself in quite rural Ireland, um, which sounds quite bleak, but is actually one of the funniest books I've read in a very long time. And John, what have you been up to? 
Well, I've been having a miserable time because I've been listening to Arthur's, uh, frankly, miserable podcasts. Um, <laughs> I've been, uh, been going to many work-related events, uh, as many uh, as possible. I've, uh, I've been, I'm running a book about uh, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein and, um, and the man who I, we still have to call Prince Andrew, uh, the Duke of York. And for light relief, I've been uh, reading about Samuel Beckett's time in Germany, um, um, and he was he was is a kind of thing that Arthur would enjoy because it's deeply miserable. But what happened was he was he was there in thirty six, and he went there to see new uh, new modern German art, and all of it was locked away. But every now and then, some kind of poor Jewish um, uh, art, um, um, somebody who owned some of these works of art would let him into the house and he could see it. And what's striking is that at that time, Beckett didn't properly understand what was going on. And uh, actually, he then moved to Paris and, and, and was, remember, he was Irish, so a neutral citizen. But nevertheless, he was very brave in the French resistance and he did good work and the, the French honoured that, honoured him afterwards. But part of the fascination of Waiting for Godot is is actually it's about him not understanding the menace that was there in Nazi Germany in Berlin in 1936. And, and part of it, I think, is his, his apology to the world for not getting what was happening in front of him in 1936. And it's an in, incredibly fascinating uh, period in time, which I'm, I'm struggling. What I want to do is write an, an, a novel about that time, and I'm kind of doing, doing the research. And boy, is it bleak. So to cheer myself up, I, uh, I listen to Arthur's uh, miserable podcast. <laughs> it, has, it has been a sobering week for you. I hadn't thought about that in terms of waiting the, for God. So, That's interesting. So the other thing, though, and this is also Arthur's fault, is by, I've been drinking too much rum. <laughs> which uh, and he he got me onto it because rum is the new kind of black or whatever but once you get going um so what i do do is i i have kind of i hand out rum barbers which you can get from waitrose and then you add extra rum and like you know the effect on my friends uh, and uh, and neighbors is is really quite fascinating um some of them are still alive <laughs> this, this is this is as we repeat a work event well i finished a french novel called uh, la normalie which is truly terrifying it's now out in english translation i don't know if marie may have read it because it won the french equivalent the booker prize last year but it's it's terrifying there's a there's a plane that lands in a normal way after turbulence and then three or four months later the plane lands again with all the same passengers with the same dna and then the trouble starts and it's just terrifying it completely freaked me out so i do recommend it though it's very very good and that's the end of this week's bunker thanks to arthur snell thanks for having me to marie leconte thank you and to our special guest john sweeney boris johnson has my full support <laughs> of course he does we'll be back tomorrow with a run of bunker daily and the full length show this time next week and don't forget a new episode of the culture bunker every saturday remember if you liked this podcast send it to three friends to spread the word there's a share button right here in your app and if you really liked it then you could support us on patreon for early episodes merchandise and all kinds of extras just search patreon bunker podcast to find out more Backers get a shout out at the end of the podcast and here are some now. 
So, hello and many thanks from me to Ewan McPherson, Adam Dabey and Rachel, just Rachel. Best wishes from me to Sasha Walker, Sally Sanders and Barry Campbell. And many thanks from me to Michael McCluskey, Enigma Bunny and Ian McKellar. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all next time. The Bunker was presented by Ross Taylor with Marie LeConte and Arthur Snell. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelda Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>